Now, more than ever, the great people of Tennessee are frustrated with the current direction we're headed as a state and as a country. We, the people, need to take a stand together, not simply as individuals, but as a force of nature in order to protect individual liberty. On this show, you'll hear from three voices who lead an organization called Tennessee Stands. Myself, John Fender, the Director of Communications, Gary Humble, the Executive Director, and Kevin Kukaji, the Chairman of the Board. We'll sit down with politicians, business leaders, community organizers, and citizens just like yourself to discuss the ideas, action points, and strategies needed to boldly take a stand and assert the unalienable rights given to us naturally by God. Welcome to the Freedom Matters Podcast. All right, I'm going to get started this week. I have a, my, my wife actually asked me this question the other day, and it stumped me. I had to think about it for a while. I thought, this is a good question to like banter at the beginning of an episode with. So I thought I'd ask you guys, you guys are music guys. If there's one artist that has passed away that you didn't get to see that you would have, that you wish you would have been able to see, who would it be? Uh, for me, that's an easy one because my family has become huge Eagles fans. So I'm disappointed that I didn't have the opportunity to see the Eagles before Glenn Fry passed mm. away. So the Eagles with Glenn Fry. Yep. Okay. I think that's I think that's a really good one for me too. That's a real close one. Gosh, I I don't know that I can answer. I'm I'm not a huge like I've got to see people fan, but I will say who I'm extremely thankful that I did get to see that died not too long after I saw them was Tom Petty. I was at that concert I, here in town. No, not here. This was back in Dallas oh. when I saw him. I saw him at Bridgestone, and six months later, he was dead. Yeah. So I was, like, super thankful, because I'm a huge yeah. Tom Petty fan. Yeah. And I was very thankful I got to see him live before he passed away. Leave it to Gary to spin my question into a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was Michael Jackson. Okay. Uh, see, my wife saw yeah. him. Really? Yeah, my wife grew up in Philly, and so... She always boasts to her children that she got to see Michael Jackson. That would have been one one killer show. Yeah. Um, all right. So today we're going to dedicate a whole episode to obscene materials and porn. <laughs> <laughs> How was that for clickbait? Yeah, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely clickbait no. of the audio version thereof. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to dedicate it to, uh, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong, House Bill 1944, correct? Yeah, and just in some principles, right, that, that I'm struggling with and how we're we're going through this bill and uh, just conversations that are being had and just larger overarching ideals that I think are important as we deal with all sorts of legislation. The way that HB 1944 is going down and conversations that are being had amongst conservatives over the bill is a great primer on really how we should be dis discussing bills and, and the things that we are willing and are not willing to compromise on as conservatives. So can we start with saying how the bill, what the bill started out as, then explain what the bill got amended to, for starters? Yeah, and then I think we can bring that around and talk about the principle, which is applicable to many pieces of legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so super, super simplistic without... Um, I think there are a lot of people that really enjoy my 20-minute videos 
And there are a lot of people that say, Gary, can't you just say this in like three minutes? And it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard when you're dealing with complex issues. Uh, but, I, but I understand the sentiment. We're all busy. We want, we want just give it to me straight. So the, the quick and dirty on this is that the original bill would have required, it would have put the burden on the school and would have required schools to keep this material um, out of the libraries and out of schools, and if if that was found to have been violated, then they would be subject to criminal penalty. At that level, it's what a principal's decision. Um, actually, no, it would be a, a prosecutor's decision as to what. Well, no, I mean, like to, to, to keep to, it out. Yeah, to remove. Yeah, the, the burden the burden would be on on any member of the school administration, and most notably the librarian. Okay. Um, but definitely would require the school administration. It puts the burden on the public school system to keep materials out. Mm-hmm. And um, it removed the a, a current exemption in our criminal code uh, for those education facilities, right? That are currently exempt from the potential of a Class A misdemeanor or a Class E felony for subsequent violations based on presenting obscene materials to minors. Mm. Okay. So the original bill would have simply put that burden on the school, keep it out. If you don't, you could be you could be facing criminal charges. Simple. The amended version of the bill now puts the burden on parents to it puts the initial burden on parents. It it leaves the books in school to violate our children. Parents who, by the way, haven't been allowed in a school building for the past two years. Uh, well, great point. <laughs> great point. Really good point. Leaves the materials in schools, allows children to be subject to that material until parents become aware, until parents lodge the complaint, and then puts the burden on local school districts to then determine whether or not those particular materials are obscene or not. And only then, after the school adjudicates those particular materials, would the administration be subject to criminal penalty if the school board had deemed those materials obscene. So we've moved away from a state standard in the burden on schools to now standards set by each individual school district and the burden being on parents to bring these materials to the surface. To bring these materials to the surface and then have it go through a crap ton of red tape and bureaucratic process. And and lovely um, extraordinarily exciting school board meetings. Right. Yeah. I forgot about those. So isn't this, Gary, something that has happened with the CRT legislation? Don't we kind of have a blueprint of what's likely to happen? If this legislation passes in the new form, the form which waters down and and basically neuters the substance or the, the impact of the legislation, don't we have an example of that already post-CRT legislation? Yeah, and it's a little yes, but no. It's it's a little different from the CRT legislation in the sense that the CRT legislation created some semblance of a state standard. It just doesn't have any mechanism by which the state standard is actually applied and it doesn't really have any enforcement as it leaves the entire duty to determine whether or not a, a school district is violating the CRT standards. In the hands of our Commissioner of Education, Penny Schwinn, who we believe to be one of the sole arbiters of inviting social, emotional learning mm, right. and diversity, equity, inclusion training into our school systems in the state of Tennessee. Right. So it's like the fox guarding the hen house. And, mm. and so my point 
was more to the lengthy delays that are going to be mm-hmm. a consequence of this by virtue of how the legislation has changed. You're going to have, number one, as John mentions, the burden is on the parents now, parents who are not only excluded from most of the meetings, but if they do have the opportunity to be there, they've already been designated by the Attorney General of the United States that they're designated as terrorists mm-hmm. or should be viewed as terrorists. And then you have a process which is going to effectively undermine or reverse the entire intent of the legislation. Yeah. So part of the the some of the principled things I just I would love for us to discuss. There are some constitutional issues I want to bring up that I think are worthy of discussion that really transcend mm-hmm. HB nineteen forty four and into much uh, broader um, concerns in terms of legislation in general. But the crux of the issue for me is I've been so I've been under fire. This last week I tried to uh, my family tried to go on vacation. We tried. I mean, we really tried to get away, and. Um, yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so, phone keeps ringing, and of course, there are accusations flying that, well, Gary's just, you know, he's 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 gone off the reservation. He's trying to kill the bill. And I, I had to put out lots of fires while I was on vacation. And the, the primary thing that was coming out that I was being told, well, Gary, what you don't understand is um, sometimes we, we need to pass legislation that that we can get now and we can come back next year and we can build on that gary don't let perfect be the enemy of good Mm. that's what i that's what i've been told and i've been wrestling i mean over this last week i have been wrestling internally my brain will not stop turning on those statements and the implications moving forward into the future if if conservatives continue to operate that way why is it only with legislation that we talk about? But by the way, that's a platitude. We've been hearing that platitude for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and platitudes, at best, are half measures or excuses for half measures. Which we love in Tennessee, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we, in, in uh, quotations, right? Not including the gentleman at this table. So I, one of my principal questions to people who make those comments, and I've had that made to me in various uh, capacities throughout my life, Let's look at it outside of a legislative process for a minute. If you're building a bridge and you're engineering the design and you, you come up to your boss and you say, this is, this is the best way we're going to secure the safe passage of cars over this bridge. And the boss comes back to you and says, Gary, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. We're going to cut a little corner over here. We'll come back and fix that bridge and make it really what you want it to be next year. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That's a great... Would, would anyone accept that as a no. standard of measurement? Yeah. So why, when we're talking mm. about the foundations of our liberties, the foundation of all the order... Let me add one more element, too. I know that some people within the conservative movement offer that phrase in good faith. They think that what they're doing is to suggest a, quote-unquote, conservative slow process. Yet the enemy has put us in this position very recklessly violently and suddenly. And our response is always, well, yes, they set our house on fire, but Gary, don't take a fire hose and call the fire department. That's too radical. What you need to do is pull out your little squirt gun here and, you know, save the hen house. Mm-hmm. Don't, you're going to lose the house anyway, but we can build it again tomorrow. So the time in which we, we are living 
perhaps 30 years ago, when I first began hearing people talk about the, the perfect has become the enemy of the good, maybe there was some time. But we are now so close to the precipice that we don't have time to wait until next year to fix it. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I love the bridge analogy, um, you know, because I do believe that the our desire and our perseverance and our steadfastness in in preserving liberty and pushing back against tyranny, like that bridge, is life sustaining. Absolutely. And and the problem is, I don't think conservatives understand. You know, it's like, yeah, we cross a bridge and it breaks. We understand immediate death, but I don't think you understand the death. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that that we're bringing upon ourselves by continuing to pass legislation that does not secure liberty and continues to concede ground. And I think there's, again, I, I think it needs to be emphasized, as you told us and you've told us again, that your intent is not to kill this bill, but even that is manipulative of someone to say to you. Right? You're trying to correct the bill. You're trying to make the bill as good as it should be. And for someone to suggest that your aim is to kill the bill is an attempt to marginalize your efforts to make it what it should be. At the end of the day, the bill is going to succeed or fail based on what people are going to vote for yeah. in committee and in the House and the Senate. But you can't change, and no person should change his principles in order to think that he's carving out a little niche over here that, well, I can improve it later. The left never does this. The left got to where we are today, got us to where we are today, by being extremely radical, forceful, deliberate. And yes, they would fail initially, but they didn't soften their position. They kept going back hard, go back hard, go back hard. And eventually, they broke through the wall. Yep. So, that's, so, so that's my question. That, that's where I was at. Why is it? Why, why in the conservative community is that don't let perfect be the enemy of good? Is that, is that the saying? Yeah. Why is that a thing? Why is that such a thing in the conservative community? Why Why are we such the opposite of what the left does? Why, why are we not so staunch on our principles and our ideals like the left? Well, it seems yeah. like we are individually, but yeah. then when we get together collectively and try to make a difference, it's like, well— Let's just get as much as we can get done and then fix it later. <clears throat> I think— Why? Number one, they still don't sense the urgency, mm-hmm. the urgency of the hour. They don't know, as my friend Russ Vogt says, they don't know what time it is, right? They think it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon or maybe dinner time at 6, when in reality it's 11.50 or 11.55 and midnight is our deadline. We're trying to do things that keep us from going over the precipice— and they just don't know where we are on the timeline. And I think that's the major difference. Because if they did, they wouldn't be saying we can fix it next year. I don't know if we're going to be here next year. Yeah. None of us do. Right. We, we, should, we should be doing everything we can to secure today. And especially as— think Every of it, time. Think of it from a Christian perspective. How can a Christian—that's that's almost like a Christian saying, well, I'll repent of my sin in increments— with the goal that I'm eventually going mm. to repent in like a couple of years from mm-hmm. now and finally give up everything. Mm-hmm. That's not what God's requirement That's is of so us, good. right? We need to repent now in turn. Yes, do we sin? Are we human? Yes. But to deliberately say in advance that all I'm going to do is repent a little bit and chip away at my sin, that's not what God requires. Well, that's mm. a good point. Like, do you think that the, not inability, but the hesitation to be so staunch on our values do you think the 
the basis of the conservative because the basis of a con- conservative movement is Judeo-Christian, right? Right. So, like, do you think that anything plays into that from that that Christian standpoint of like passiveness and turn the other cheek kind of attitude and 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 that side of things? I'm sure some of that does, but I, it still gets me back to the point not only of what we touched upon last week when we talked about my book. I think a lot of Christians have abandoned the essence of liberty and why it's the duty mm. of Christians to argue from a position of liberty and why it doesn't make sense to anyone else. They, they can claim it makes sense, but why it only makes sense according to a Christian worldview. Christians should be the champion, and conservatives, as a subset of Christians, should be the political champions of doing things the right way. And I think a part of it, John, is that they're afraid that if they stand up, that it's not going to happen for them. So they're cowed into fear to taking a lesser position on the belief that they can get there. It's a fear of failure. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Fear of failure. And perhaps sometimes you do fail. Well, no kidding. We all fail. You win some, you lose some. But you don't weaken your game plan because you're going to lose some games. Maybe that's the analogy they should be making. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a season, but you don't... (laughs) You don't fumble the ball away and say, well, because it's really the next game that I'm, I'm worried about winning. I'm going to fumble the ball here. We'll win a couple games this season, but next season we're going to win the <laughs> yeah, championship. Yeah, we're really going to get yeah. it. Yeah. No, we go after every single game with the intention of winning, and we're going to win some and we're going to lose some. But like you it's your last. Yeah. And if you don't try to win like it's your last, you're certainly going to lose. So it's, a, it's kind of a um, self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. Last night, I spent time, I listened back to our last podcast on Apologetic for Liberty. And man, I I loved listening back to that one. I got so much out of it. I, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to plug your book again in Apologetic for Liberty. I cannot wait for your book to come out because I cannot wait to get it out to some of our audience mm-hmm. in Tennessee stands because it is so fundamental. I mean, it's it's the fundamentals that we must consistently apply to who we are and what we believe and how we go about our daily lives and living out the pursuit of liberty. There are things that we simply must not only understand, but not compromise on. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to get that out to people. Well, from uh, your lips to my desk... We're one step closer today. I got copies of the cover to approve, and um, it's beautiful. The cover is absolutely beautiful. It like touches all my creative and intellectual buttons. Well, all that's at the great, same Kevin. Time. Can you just hit submit <laughs> and go to print already? No, no, just so, approve. So, is I your did. Crea- are your creative juices I satisfied, did. Kevin? <laughs> I did approve, and so now I said, please let me know when they'll be bound because the the content was already printed. This was the last step. Mm. So I I expect to be right around the corner to have copies of that book. Oh, gosh, Gary, I was going to say something that you reminded me of about another answer and another good response. Oh, at the end of the day, God demands our obedience. And I think when when people say, don't let the great or the perfect become the enemy of the good, they're trying to control an outcome, which is never oh, within our this purview. this is so good. Right? Keep saying what you're saying. Our job is to be obedient. It's just like in the realm of apologetics. When we preach the gospel— Our job is not to change a person's heart. We can't. We don't have that capacity, and it's arrogant to presume we do. Our duty— You could even go as far as as to say, our job is not to win. Our job— It's only to do what's right. It's only to do do what's what's right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So our job is to speak the truth, to live the truth, to obey what God has called us to do, 
and not try to control the outcome. The mm-hmm. outcome is in God's hands, and mm-hmm. it is arrogance to think that we are controlling the outcome and foolishness. That's good. Let's just hit stop. Let's just stop recording because that's really, I mean, that at the end of the day, and that when I'm thank you because that is it. It's it's our need, our desire to pretend that we that well, and it's almost a selfish ambition to mm-hmm. continue to garner the kind of influence necessary to have the control. Right. When really that's it's never about control. It's never about garnering influence. It's always about doing what's right and being committed to being obedient to consistent principles that we know to be the truth. And just like you said, Kevin, I mean the the outcome is owed only to God, and He is in control. And the moment that we think that we're in control and that He's not, and we vie and we position mm-hmm. and we concede, we lose. Yep. We lose. Man, that's so good. So, okay, so in light of doing what's right, where are we with this bill? And what is is there anything to do? Is there anything we can do to make it well, right again? Well, you know, it's, honestly, that's going to be up to the bill sponsors. The The House bill is done. Uh, it, it heads to the floor next week, and they're going to vote up or down. And quite frankly, I hope they, they pass it. I, I, the House needs to pass it because – actually, I think it hits the Senate first. Okay, let me back up. If it hits the House floor first, they need to pass it to give the Senate an opportunity to do something with it in committee. Hmm. If <laughs> – if the Senate committee happens first, I think the House has an opportunity to, to respond and conform to the Senate version. And or at some point, the two bills pass on the floor and they're in conflict, and then it forces the bill to go into conference committee. But my point is there are still several opportunities to fix this. Primarily, the opportunity exists in the Senate because the Senate committee has not even passed it out yet. So depending upon how the Senate committee amends the bill and what they send to their floor is going to determine the final outcome. Okay. So that's where we are. There, there's plenty of opportunity to fix this. What, what I want to talk about is one of the – I want to talk about a couple of constitutional issues. And, and again, these are not issues only specific to HB 1944. These are overarching principles. This amendment came to be, again, this idea of of concession, right, and trying to control the outcome. My understanding is that the uh, the ACLU, <laughs> who we all know to be a wonderful <laughs> organization yeah. that promotes liberty and freedom, came and testified against the bill, and uh, they, you know, I think they tricked a bunch of conservatives. What they argued was, oh, well, the, they they brought up the Miller test. Well, this bill is unconstitutional and must therefore be fixed because if you pass the bill as it is, um, it's against the Miller test, the Supreme Court. And and let me real, really quickly tell you what the Miller test is. So the Miller test is based off of a Supreme Court decision, uh, Miller v. California, which was adjudicated in 1973. Roe v. Wade year. So, mm-hmm. you'll, so let's first acknowledge, right, that this is the same court – the same Supreme Court that said that moms have a right, a liberty right, to kill their unborn mm-hmm. children. All right? I don't, I don't remember where that was you don't in the remember? Constitution. Right, exactly. Yeah. So let's let's put that forward. Same court. All right, Miller v. California, 1973. This guy in California is creating mailers 
and he's sending mail to people to advertise his uh, his pornography, his pornographic wares. Obviously, that was offensive to a lot of people. It would be to me, certainly. People complained. I believe the issue was that California shut it down. You can't do that. He sued. It went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court had, you know, let's in legal speak, a legitimate controversy to, mm-hmm. to, to fix. Because on the one hand, yes, um, you can't send pornographic material in the mail. It's lewd. You, you keep lewdness and 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 uh, obscenity out of out of the public primarily because it's har- it's harmful to minors you don't want to present that to minors right so that was the but the other issue is they're trying to uphold an individuals now bear with me here because it's important important distinction an individuals constitutionally secured first amendment right to free speech mm-hmm. so the supreme court has a legitimate duty here to make sure that, yes, we're not harming minors. However, we want to make sure that we don't impede on the individual's right to free speech. That is a legitimate case in controversy. And the key word, individual. Individual. (laughs) Why, Kevin? (laughs) Because what does the Constitution secure rights to? Individual liberty. That's right. Right? Not, well, I'll let you finish the story. Well, well, yeah. So the, the Constitution, um, hopefully we all know, secures rights to persons, to people. Okay, so the ACLU comes into H to the to HB nineteen forty four and says, Oh, wait a minute, you gotta fix this is unconstitutional. You have to apply the Miller test which means you have to allow for community standards to be formed to determine what is obscene and what is not obscene. But all of the, the the entire Miller test conversation is predicated around securing First Amendment free speech rights to individuals. Okay, so here's what I want to put forward. Here's the lie that we bought. I mean, let me backtrack a minute. The original version of HB 1944, which said it put the burden on public schools to remove obscene materials presented to minors under the under the um, criminal justice code and possible criminal penalty. So who who or what was HB 1944 regulating? Public schools. Public schools. What are public schools? Government entities. Public schools are entities formed they're they're agents of the state. They are formed by state government. All right. Another question. Do, do governments, state agencies, government agencies have constitutional rights? Absolutely not. Hell to the no. <laughs> Which means, bear with me, public schools do not have a right to free speech. Mm-hmm. Which means the ACLU poker faced you. They fooled you into believing that you needed to protect a First Amendment right for the government. Mm-hmm. Governments do not have free speech. And let me add something to People that. do. As Gary was telling us this, I was reminded of a situation in Florida. And you, and you, can, look me, you can look this up because I don't have the details on top of my head. And I haven't had the opportunity to go back to my notes or my computer. But this is actually a plan. And this is really important that 
the audience of this podcast understand that there is, as there always is, the left has a plan. The left has an agenda. And one of the left's agenda that seems to be popping up a little bit here and there is that they are trying to institute this idea that government does have constitutional rights. And you are about to see the inversion of rights where they are not only are they ignoring your liberties, but they're going to be using their efforts and making arguments before the court that if you do not allow government to do X, Y, and Z, whatever the case may be in a particular circumstance, that you are therefore uh, <laughs> violating the government's constitutional rights. So they'll go back to the same constitution that's supposed that is supposed to protect the people. individual. Yeah, the the liberties of the individual, the people. And it's going to be not ignored anymore. It's going to be used for the very purpose of securing more rights in the government. But how, how do they stand on that? Like, w let's just say we actually stand up for the fact that that's not true. And we press that. What Legally speaking, what can they come in and say government has a right? Where, oh, where does well, this, that say nothing. it? This is, this is why it's so important what's happening at law schools. They're training lawyers to believe that this is what our constitution the, well, is intended for. But well, I would also say no. Say that. Yeah, but but I, but they're counting on the fact that we don't know. You understand? But it's not that well, okay. I'm going to say it's not that hard to know because you can just read the constitution. You know but because you've been in this for 2 years, okay? I didn't know 2 yeah. years ago. Now I do. And but, most don't. But all of the courts it's not just quote unquote court packing, but courts will over the next couple of decades should we exist that long will be filled with justices who are coming out of law schools that teach these things. And so it, it won't matter that you hold up a constitution and say, Your Honor, it doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. The judge will give you some long explanation as to why that was the intent. Therefore, they establish precedent. Doesn't say they'll that. they'll then, cite case then, precedent yeah. in case law, not the constitution. Exactly. Or and then that say... precedent becomes... In, Really, the Constitution becomes subservient to the precedent that they've yeah. established That's through right. common law. Or they'll say it doesn't say that, but it implies exactly. that. Yeah. My, uh, uh, one of my good friends and mentors explained to me one time, he said, you know, when you go to law school, you're taught um, to base what you believe about law and how, do you, how, do you, how you adjudicate cases by case law, by precedent. And so you're always reading what the last judge said with the lashes. He said, it's like, imagine if you went to Bible college and you never read the Bible. You only read Matthew Henry's commentary. Mm. You know, your, your entire existence on what scripture means was, was never based on reading the scripture. It was only based on what someone said mm -hmm. about it. That's law school. Yep. And it's, it's, it's a travesty with where we are. So my, my point in bringing this up is that some really good, well-meaning conservatives have been <clears throat> bamboozled, should I say, uh, in a nice way, into amending a bill, hear me, in order to preserve and protect the free speech of public schools, which they have none. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is and we we have conceded the argument to penalize you know to penalize these public schools. The truth is is that not only per our constitution per the 10th amendment per state powers because these powers are not enumerated to the federal government therefore they're reserved to the states or to the people. Okay. Set that aside for a minute. 
But even our Tennessee state constitution gives per uh, Article 11, Section 12 of our Tennessee state constitution the authority, the sole authority and the duty to our General Assembly to regulate for the free and the maintenance of the public education of our, of our school system. Our General Assembly has the sole authority and duty to regulate everything in and outside concerning our education system. You tell these suckers what they can and cannot do by the authority of the people of this state. Mm -hmm. End of story. We have now conceded that and have bought into the lie that these public schools have some contrived right to free speech that we must now abide by that will now expose our children to pornographic material and leave, leave it to mostly leftist school boards to determine whether or not those obscene materials are now pulled from our, those library shelves. That is where we sit today. So I think we should talk about the one other constitutional problem with this. The 14th Amendment equal protection issue. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I'm, I'm still <laughs> fired up about the last issue. I know, but you're up. But the other one is equally as important. But Kevin's but, like in the interest of time. But we, so essentially, like you, you use the whole, if those out there who are using the statement, don't let perfect be the evil of good or the enemy of good. What, what we essentially did with that amended bill, it's not even close to being, we made it worse. Well, By the way, that's a, that, yeah, that's a really good point, John. The assumption when someone says, don't let great or perfect be the enemy of good, they're assuming that the result is good. It's good. It's not good. This <laughs> right. is not a good right? result. That's an awful worse. audacious assumption. Yeah. It is, is handing a First Amendment free speech right to a government entity a good result? No. You know, and so that's, dude, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to say. That's, if, if you hear anything, hear me. I'm not saying let's not do everything we can to keep porn away from our children. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if we pass a bill saying that now school boards have First Amendment rights, okay, mm -hmm. if we concede that argument and that and that school boards, by the way, which unless if this bill passes, never before in law have we given this kind of power to local school boards. Let me just put that out there. If they now have the power to determine, to have cultural competency, okay, to determine what is lewd and, and obscene for children, well, you've opened Pandora's box. Yeah. We've tried to pass state law that says we can't teach CRT. Well, now if school boards can, can determine what is obscene and what is not, well, why not? That's no longer a state function. What we're saying is the local school board gets to determine everything. Yeah. That because they have free speech. And if anybody is of the... Uh... <laughs> is suffering under the illusion that these school boards are going to suddenly eliminate pornographic material because of this legislation, mm -mm. then they've not been paying attention. We, we talked about how, by and large, most of the school boards are going to, if not simply allow, some of them will be very deliberate in maintaining pornographic material in their libraries. And so when the parents then come to make a stink about it, what's going to happen? Well, you're just a terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what, what, what a lot of our... We're going to be prosecuted <laughs> by the federal government. And it's a setup. This is what I... A lot of parents need to look further down the road and understand that once you give the school board this free speech right, which doesn't exist in the Constitution, and you give them the power to do this and, and cons at simultaneously put the burden on the parents to be the ones to bring it to their attention, mm -hmm. 
then you are creating this conflagration. You're going to have a fire that the attorney general says, see, these parents, the parents are the problem. So you won't solve the school board, you won't solve the pornographic issue, and you will have exacerbated and created another problem by putting parents into a situation where they're deemed terrorists by the attorney general. Which leads into a whole other podcast series right. we could do on that <laughs> event. But, uh, so, okay, so... So so one more glaring... This goes into a 14th Amendment yeah. issue. Here's the other glaring constitutional issue. All right, the problem is that we're dealing with civil penalty, okay? So at the end of the day, to, to some degree, after the, the school board determined whether or not, you know, this material was obscene, School administrators, librarians, teachers, you know, anyone employed by the school is now potentially liable and subject to criminal penalty. First offense, a Class A misdemeanor, which is a fine of $2,500 and up to a year in jail. And any subsequent violation, the potential to be um, uh, convicted of a Class C felony. All right. So, you know, you're going to prison. Criminal penalty is always defined by the state. Uh, the Constitution and our state law does not allow criminal penalty to be to be defined by counties or any other legislative body outside of our state general assembly. Further, um, that state penalty must be evenly assessed, equally assessed amongst the people, which is a a Fourteenth Amendment principle: equal protection under the law. Well, here <laughs> here's what this bill is going to do. Now you're allowing local school boards to determine the definition of obscenity, which means that in some counties, a state employee, bear with me here, an employee or, or various employees employed by the same state, they draw their, their paycheck, they're under the same state law, okay? If they provide material in one county, they're potentially subject to a Class C felony, Okay. Same employee, same paycheck, same state, they provide that same material in another county and they're just educating. Okay. Plain and simple. This is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. This is an equal protection claim all day long. You cannot have a state employee subject to a felony in one county and not in another. We brought up, by the way, a great comparison. We brought up the same issue regarding the mask mandates. When the governor delegated authority to county mayors to issue a mask mandate, and if you go back to TCA 52, gosh, I'm forgetting now. Was it 52-2-107? You're looking at me like <laughs> yeah. I know. Gary the, knows those numbers. The, yeah. emer the emergency power statute in Tennessee, if you go back to that, emergency power statute, any citizen found breaking the an emergency order is subject to a Class A misdemeanor. Again, $2,500 or uh, up to a year in jail. Well, under the governor's order, depending upon whether or not a county mayor issues a mask mandate means that whenever my county mayor in Williamson County issued the mandate, but my good friend, Mayor Andy Ogles, said, hey, this is unconstitutional. This stuff isn't, isn't going to happen in Murray County. If I was busted wearing a mask in Williamson or not wearing a mask in Williamson County, I could go to jail. I crossed the county line as a Tennessee citizen and go into Murray County and I'm as, I'm as free as can be 
that's unconstitutional mm-hmm. because you're taking you're misappropriating state law because those the criminal burden is not defined by the county but by the state. Okay, so this is the same. This is the same issue. We're doing the same thing that we did in this stupid emergency, where we led by executive fiat and bastardized our criminal code and our state constitution in terms of securing individual liberties. And I'll say. I'm going to say this one last thing before I get really fired up. He's fired up, and Gary. Pissed off. I mean, Kevin. <laughs> I'm just looking at Gary being fired up. Yeah, Gary in the mind. I'll, I'll say. I'll say one last. Uh, one last thing. God, I'm. I'm. I'm losing what I wanted to say. Oh, the the folks that are pushing this amendment. Well, Gary, you're just wrong. Bear with. Me. You're just wrong because we brought this. We asked our attorney general, and the attorney general said that HB 1944 was constitutional. Okay, this is the same guy that said that the governor's emergency powers to lead by executive fiat was constitutional. Mm -hmm. This is the same guy that said masking children in schools was constitutional. This is the same guy that issued a, I believe, 2021 opinion number 14. You can go look it up. Issued an opinion on whether or not the governor could issue in order that allowed county mayors to issue mask mandates and said it was constitutional. Mm-hmm. Same guy. And back then, you were on my team. Oh, yeah, Gary. Is unco- but now that you want to pass a bill, oh, well, Gary, you know, he said it's unco- it, he said it's constitutional. We're good. You know that's what they rely on, right? Short-term memory loss. Yeah, absolutely. They all rely on that. Let me Let me play out a scenario that I think is likely to happen as well. My experience, I've lived here for 30 years, my experience with local government and state government in Tennessee is that whenever pressed, the legislative body, whether it's a county commission, whether it's a school board, or whether it is the General Assembly, if they're ever pressed on an issue that they're uncomfortable with, they always defer to the courts. Mm. Do you not think that should this legislation pass in its current form, giving a free speech right to school boards, where you have some school boards determining what is pornography in one county different than what is pornography in another county, do you not see that the county that would be inclined and be begged by the parents to to deem this pornography, they'll say, yes, we know that it's pornography, but I can't do that because it's a constitutional issue. Suddenly, that constitutional issue will, will be turned against us, mm-hmm. and it will be used as a, oh. as a cudgel as to why they cannot take action. So the, the counties that will win—so you have this very valid and real equal protection issue. The problem is—the the problem worsens because that alone is going to make all the counties who want to deem— material pornographic, they're going to stay away from it and allow it simply because they don't want to be sued. For example, Williamson County says it is pornographic. Davidson County says it's not. But Williamson County says because they said it's not. We, we have, also have to say it's we not. Have yeah. to, we have to 14th Amendment this and say it's, it's not. Exactly, because it's not just going to be a peer pressure, although in reality is peer pressure. Yeah. They're going to use the the um, the pretext that this is that they're concerned about the constitutionality of it, which they should be concerned about the constitutionality constitutionality of it on the front end now yeah but now they're saying oh yeah it's constitutional but when it, when it comes to implementing it i guarantee you that that's what they're going to use 
to not follow through and deem legitimate pornographic material as pornographic. Mm. Oh, or let me give you another scenario. These corrupt courts will uphold the law as constitutional in order to now expand and ascribe new free speech powers to governments. Mm -hmm. And now we've got case law mm -hmm. and precedents that they will rely on to say, wait a minute, this is within the power of the school's parents. You don't have the right to parent your children anymore. The government gets to determine what is obscene exactly. and what is not. Yep. You have no more liberty right. Yeah, and we cannot lose sight of the fact that the left has an agenda, and all of these things are linked. This is a big picture. Those on our side, for some reason, tend to compartmentalize and think that it's only this issue. And so when they say again that you're letting the perfect become the enemy of the good, the reason that's such a bad assumption is it's not good because it opens the door that they're not even aware of, not even thinking about, opens the door to a much bigger agenda, and that, which will leave them with the only response later is to craft other legislation. And when we go to fix that legislation, they'll say, oh, Gary, you're letting the perfect become the enemy of the good, when that other legislation would not have even been necessary if they would have shut it down at this point. Hmm. Let me tell you what I'd, what I'd like to see, what I want. Okay. I want to keep porn away from our kids. I want to keep obscene materials out of our schools. But I do not want to expand the powers of government. I want parents to retain those individual God-given liberty rights. I don't want to hand them over to the school board. Okay? And I want to uphold our state constitution by continuing to give our General Assembly the sole authority to tell these schools what they ought to do and not send that decision down to these local school boards so that we continue to divide and... We, we we break down the fabric of our Tennessee culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you go from one county to the next, and you're it's like you're in a different world. I mean, you, you leave Williamson County and go to Nashville, you're in a different spot. Right. Yep. You know, so what I'm saying is we, we have to continue to follow the Constitution. We can never waver. We, we have to hold the line. Look, we've got to hold the line here in Tennessee. That's what I'm saying. You would think that's a pretty easy thing to understand you would, you would think so fight for but i i have to admit that starting this podcast there was a little bit of a selfish aspect to it because i just i i love being in the room just hearing the two of you guys talk so i learn crap ton more than i thought i would mm. just being in the room so thank you well thanks for doing this guys kevin's yeah. the one writing books well that's true <laughs> coming out soon Coming he, out soon. If he would just hit yes and approve things. Yeah, I just, did. I just approved it. Just submit, Kevin. <laughs> hit print. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't print it. It's a real printer. Uh, all right. We'll be back next week. Uh, rate and review the show, as always. And Joe Rogan? Anytime. Always available. Always welcome. Thank you for listening to the Freedom Matters podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, Visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. And remember, as revolutionary Thomas Paine once stated, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. <laughs>